Is there anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is Monday, June 5th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens, Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards from across the country. You can join us also at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. And look, listen to the show right now. You're sitting there on YouTube. Why not help us out right now? You can smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. You're looking for more PA Progressive Talk? Tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor in chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions that we can steer the community towards calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check them out at thebuckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. Yes, and look, it's the end of the school year. Kids get A's when they get A's, or kids get a discount when they get A's in a report card. I got that all flipped around. See how that works? Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at The Game In. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Look, folks, right here in our own backyards at Bucks County, Pennsylvania, we cannot let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and the oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations ejecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, tonight, folks... Yes, we're getting into it. Yes, once again, tonight's episode of I've to Coop Live, I welcome Eleanor Goldfield to the show. We'll be talking about her latest article in Truth Out. If the police can't can can decide who qualifies as a journalist, 
There is no free press. We've been talking about creeping fascism, creeping authoritarianism in our everyday lives. And here we go once again. In this piece, she spotlights the arrest of two journalists arrested while covering the eviction of unhoused people from a public park in Asheville, North Carolina. The case has received limited national coverage, but it marks another moment in the withering away of constitutional protections for the press. Eleanor Goldfield is a creative radical, journalist, and filmmaker. Mutual aid and community organizing are cornerstones of her work and personal life, informing both her journalistic and artistic projects. We're going to talk a little bit about that towards the end of the show tonight, so stick around. Her written and photojournalism has appeared in independent publications across the United States and internationally. She is one of the 2020 recipients of the Women and Media Award presented by the Women's Institute for Freedom of the Press. She is currently a board member of Media Freedom Foundation. And recently, she released her first solo EP titled No Solo after more than a decade fronting the political hard rock band Rooftop Revolutionaries, which I was telling her before the show, threw me back to the Occupy day. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> one, two, two together here. Yes, and so also she's got a recent documentary film coming out, or already out, I'm sorry, um, Hard Road of Hope, which is uh, covers the radical history and present struggles in West Virginia and has been widely acclaimed. We'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. And currently, Eleanor is the co-host of the podcast Common Censored, along with Lee Camp, as well as Project Censored radio show with Mickey Huff. Ooh, welcome to the show, Eleanor. So glad you're here. Thank you so much. Uh, very, very glad to be here with you. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Well, I'll tell you, you know, when I saw your piece come out um, immediately, I mean, like, like literally, I think it was uh, probably hours after it dropped on Truth Out, I'm like, Oh, I think uh, I'm going to reach out to her. Uh, we got to talk about this since um, that's kind of one of the things that we tend to focus on 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 this uh, on this program. Um, but I thought before we jump into the article and so on and so on, maybe we could just kind of um, for those folks who might be unfamiliar with some of the, your podcasts or the work that you do. Can you talk a little about kind of how you approach you approach your activism, um, kind of what got you into this media space? Um, and, you know, I, and I guess I'm curious about those intersections that you see through those, the creative lines of your work and also the mm. journalistic lines. So I don't know if that's just too much to put on the plate to set the table <laughs> at first. Um, but if you could just introduce yourself a little bit more to folks and let us know about your, how you got to where you're at today. Oh, wow. I mean, it might be too much for, for the current <laughs> mom brain, um, that I have, but, uh, I hear that but, well, <laughs> dad brain, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, um, I mean, I'll, I'll start with like how I, how the journalism ended up, uh, because I feel very strongly about citizen journalism as somebody who was never officially, you know, academically trained as a journalist. I didn't go to journalism school. Um, I don't have a plaque on my wall that says, you know, you've got this, uh, this diploma that says that you're good at this now. Um, I started actually writing for recording magazines um, as I worked as a, a tech in LA in recording studios. And so I would write for various outlets about here's how you fix your own mic cable. And here's how, <laughs> you know, if you need new tubes for your amp, like you can do this, just, just please don't electrocute yourself and like things like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so then when um, I'd already started, I mean, I'd been writing for years more, you know, uh, lyrical and poetic things, but I hadn't been doing more journalism until, uh, until I'd started writing from recording magazines. And then when Occupy, Occupy started happening. Uh, I just remember going to Occupy LA because it was literally right down the street from our apartment, me and my uh, guitarists. And I was like, 
I'm going to write about this because this is just really cool and I want to be a part of it. And so I started going, you know, every day. And so I became part of, uh, part of the Occupy LA, um, movement and then started working for Occupy.com, uh, ended up doing a show with them, uh, that aired on free speech TV for, for, uh, for, for five years, mm-hmm. um, called act out. And through that, just started working for a lot of different outlets, um, truth out included, uh, and really just covering the things that corporate media didn't cover. Uh, and as somebody who had been doing activism before I started doing journalism, it was very important to me, like, wow, as somebody who was on the front lines, I was like, media just gets it wrong all the time. And how can I be the media that doesn't perpetuate that or doesn't repeat that? Um, and so I feel, uh, I felt, and I feel, I still feel that it's very important to have media that is part of the movement, um, that is welcomed into the movement, that knows how to be in these spaces, that knows how to support the folks on the front line and not share their stories in an extractive way, uh, but share stories in a in a way that platforms and pedestals these people's voices. Um, and so I've I, that's that's kind of how that happened and how that brought me to this place in terms of written journalism, but also in terms of filmmaking and photojournalism as well. Um, and in terms of creativity, I mean, I I always say that there's no such thing as a non-political artist because all of yeah. life is political. Uh, it just depends on whether you are overtly political or if you try to hide uh, behind, you know, bubblegum pop or something like that, um, or, you know, uh, rock or rap or whatever the genre is, if you try to hide it behind something, but you are being political. If your music is totally a, you know, apolitical, then you're making a statement. You're saying that the only thing that really matters to me is getting laid and money and whatever, or whatever. Um, and art has always been a driving force, uh, in movements, you know, it's, uh, whether that be the, whether that be, uh, you know, music, whether that be art, whether that be poetry, film, uh, these things have always been part of movements because they are a human emotion. And where do you need human emotion more than, uh, on the front lines, both as a way to, uh, you know, as a catharsis, but also as a salve, as a way to heal, as a way to process trauma, as a way to process living under late stage capitalism and the fall of the greatest empire the world's ever seen. Um, so for me, these things are not these are these are not separate things. And you know, I've had I've met some editors that don't like my more creative writing, my more creative journalistic writing, my tone. Um, but you know, I'm not for everybody and that's okay. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know if you feel this way, but since you, I mean, you mentioned this stuff about Occupy, it's like, you know, I, I often think about Occupy as being a moment of unleashing of, um, a lot of disparate and disconnected, um, kind of threads of political activism and art, um, and community work that hadn't just been brought together in one space before. And mm-hmm. I know there's been a lot of books and things that have written about talking about that role of Occupy and stuff, but I'm often like thinking about the period before like the 1950s, before like the civil rights movement or the 1920s or 1910s, before we saw the kind of the radicalism of the 1930s mm-hmm. where, there was these spaces, you know, I'm thinking about the Highlander School for Social Research, for example, mm-hmm. where art and music and poetry and community and kind of trans, like a kind of racial organizing was all kind of brought together in these spaces that we don't often get to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we always glorify what happens later on and what you see the big movements and stuff. But it seems to me that Occupy was one of those moments. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'm kind of pushing that beyond 
um, kind of what you think was there, but that, that's always been the sense for me. And I, I keep on hearing stories like, as a matter of fact, Raging Chicken, this uh, publication, before we were even a podcast, got its start in 2011, right, mm-hmm. on the shores of the, the Tea Party victory, right, and the, the overtaking of, you know, the, the Wisconsin uprising, and then the organizing for the, what I'm to occupy. So it was kind of in that same space. We thought, well, where do we go and what do we do? I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts on that, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that Occupy was so many things, yeah. and uh, I will always be proud of what Occupy was and what Occupy did, and I think that there is an important analysis to be made. There's important critique to be made. There's there's always critique and analysis that that, that has to be made, um, and I think that, you know, we should let Occupy be what it was, yeah. um, and, you know, for some people, it was this, it was the, the, the you know, the, the pinnacle um, moment of their lives where they shifted their thinking. Uh, for some people, it was, you know, like, you know, like my dad who marched on Washington in the 60s. He's like, oh, that was a thing that happened. <laughs> like for him, it feels differently. Um, so and I think that I think that this also speaks to the kind of cyclical the cyclical motions of these movements. And that can feel disheartening, like, wow, we're just going in a circle. But, you know, everything goes in in a cycle, so to speak, in terms of like the seasons, but that doesn't mean that every year is the same. Like we move forward as we move in cycles. Um, And while I don't agree with MLK Jr. who said that, you know, the arc of justice, like we're we're moving in, in, in the direction of justice, I think that depends. It depends on what we do. Nothing is a foregone conclusion. Um, the arc of history bends toward justice. Sorry, I messed up that yeah, quote. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I think that it, you know, it always depends. And of course, you know, like in uh, just as an example, in the early 1900s, Germany was considered the safest place for Jews in Europe. <laughs> Uh, not so like 20 years later, <laughs> right, right, right. but so it really depends on what people do. And I think this is Occupy was one of those moments where it felt like, okay, this is kinetic. This isn't just potential. Like we have kinetic power, not potential power. And that is, a, 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 a that was an incredible moment for me. And I know it was an incredible moment for so many people. Uh, and so again, I think that you know we should let Occupy be what it was, uh, and use it as it continues to be for me as well uh, as an inspiration for moving forward and a lesson for moving forward. Like, what did we do wrong? What did we do right? What can we learn from this? And you know, I continue to do that with every action that happens, every campaign, if you want to call it that. You know, like if it's blocking a pipeline, okay, like what did we learn? What do we what do we need to do better? And I also think this is the importance of political education. Because, right. you know, if, for instance, we don't learn about COINTELPRO, then people are going to wonder why the FBI is knocking on their door. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we need to learn about these things so we know what to look out for and we know what potholes to, to, to try and avoid. Well, I mean, I, I mean, that's beautifully said. And I, and I think what you just articulated there was precisely one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on tonight to talk about this latest piece. We talk about one of these potholes because right? it seems to be that we're at one of these moments that proves the, you know, that there is no natural progression towards one way or another. Um, that um, we've seen studies that are looking at kind of, you know, how democracy is in decline in so many different places, that we're seeing institutions that many people thought were just, you know, oh, that this is the next stage of, of positive progress towards some sort of weird utopian future that we don't need to do anything for except buy and, you know, and watch TV and all stuff like this. But right now we've seen, I mean, obviously we 
put Trump aside because I think that that is a distraction more than anything else at this point, right. rather than kind of the deep, deeply written kind of authoritarian kind of tendencies and threads that we've gone down here. And we've got this case in North Carolina, which you talked about in your piece in Truth Out, in which two journalists are kind of uh, kind of arrested. And this case seems to be an important one. So before we get into some of the, say, the implications of this case, can you talk a little about kind of just kind of what happened, right? What mm-hmm. happened here? Uh, what were they doing? And kind of um, take us up to what what happened in the court case and so on. And we can talk back and forth about that. Too. Sure. So, uh, of course, there's a lot more detail, but to give kind of like the cliff's notes of the situation. So, um, uh, it was Christmas night. I, you know, I sound like a, a Dickens novel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. That's I, seriously. That's like your first line, right? You know, it's kind of like on a cold Christmas night in yeah. 2021. I'm like, here we go. I know because it sounds like so cozy and you're like imagining jingle bells and then you're like, actually two people were arrested and it became a groundbreaking case in the ongoing fascism of our nation. Like, oh, that doesn't feel very Christmassy. Um, but it's so, an yeah, anime was, turn, right? <laughs> I know. Seriously. Yeah. Um, so it was Christmas <clears throat> 2021. Uh, and of course, I think starting off, we should highlight that it was done on Christmas for a very specific reason, right? And it's the same reason that they'll pass, you know, that the federal government will pass legislation on like, you know, uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day or something because everyone's wasted or they're hungover and they don't notice that you just cut their Medicaid or whatever. Um, These things are done specifically on these days because people are too busy living their lives or trying to carve out a little bit of joy in the mess of this horrific system. And so um, these two journalists, uh, Matilda Bliss and Veronica Coit, uh, work for uh, an outlet called the Asheville Blade. And the Asheville Blade is not afraid to be very outspoken about their stance, uh, about their radical politics. And, uh, you know, they are, they employ people and uh, work with people who are very, very clear about being anti-establishment, which the last I checked is still allowed. <laughs> and, and and dare be, dare we say, encouraged, right, in some sort like narratives about American history, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, so they knew that there was just like in a lot of parks, some, wherever folks are listening to this, I'm sure it's the same in Pennsylvania. There are a lot of parks where unhoused people go to sleep because they have nowhere else to go. And what Asheville has done, like so many other cities, they've instituted a curfew where the park closes at 10 PM. And so no one's allowed to be there after 10 PM. Uh, and this is clearly just there to ensure that unhoused people do not sleep there. Uh, there's no other reason for those laws to exist. And this was the same thing happening at this place called Aston Park in um, in Asheville. And it had been the scene of uh, a lot of back and forth, a lot of struggle between the cops and local grassroots organizers. Uh, they had set up you know, mutual aid to, to make sure that people could get food and, and warm clothing and things like that. Um, and they were going to evict some unhoused people on Christmas night. And so Veronica Coit and Matilda Bliss were, uh, were, uh, tipped off about this. And so they went there and they proceeded to be the first ones arrested. And a, uh, I believe there were six or seven folks that were arrested that night. They were arrested first. And if you, if you go and you listen to the body cam footage, the cops literally say, let's arrest them first because they're videotaping. Right. Also, it's legal. 
to film the cops. But this is also not the first time that we see people targeted because they are filming the police, a supposedly legal activity. Um, under the During the course of their arrest and their detainment, they said many times, we are press, we are press, we are press, completely ignored. Um, and there was a pivotal moment where the magistrate, who is the person who basically you know, gets people and takes the police's information and says, okay, I'm going to book them. Mm -hmm. uh, but the magistrate has the right to say, actually, that's not cool. I'm not booking them. That sounds like a bogus, uh, um, a bogus claim. And so at one point, the cop says to the magistrate, well, this one says she's press. And then the magistrate says, is she real press? Um, and this was a pivotal moment because as Veronica told me, at that moment, they could have decided that we were press, which we were. <laughs> and this whole thing would have not gone any further. We wouldn't know their names. This would not be an issue. And the First Amendment would be somewhat still intact. It, but that's not what happened. The magistrate booked them. Uh, they continued their journey through our hilarious uh, justice system. And then the judge found them guilty of trespassing, despite the fact that as press, they have the right to be there to cover what's happening. Uh, and the judge claims that they didn't show enough evidence to suggest that they are press. Also, in this nation, you don't actually have to. That's kind of the thing. Like, I don't have to have an official press pass because the right. point being is that, well, if we start deciding what's an official press pass or not, then who, I mean, th there's no end to it. Then maybe just one outlet. Like what if Fox News was the only person that could get right. official press badges? So it, that that is that is in place so that uh, people of all kinds of press, including alternative press, which I'd like to point out is really the only adversarial press that this country yep. has left, uh, can cover things, uh, cover actions and events legitimately. And so you don't actually have to have any kind of official, it's not like being a doctor or, you know, like a law enforcement, like you don't have a special badge. Um, so the judge saying that suggests in his decision that there is, that we are moving towards or that he feels that the only way that journalists will have any rights in his court is if they live up to his official standards, which if judges get to decide, if cops get to decide, if magistrates get to decide, where do you draw the line and where do you actually have a free press? And the point being is that because the judge and the cops, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of back in, uh, story to this, but they don't like the Asheville Blade because the Asheville Blade gives them a hard time yep. about being brutal cops, about being crooked judges, about being all of those things. And so if you can just decide that an adversarial press, which is the only uh, distinction of a free press, if you can decide that an adversarial press is not real press, then you have a totalitarian anti-free press government. Right. I mean, you know, and this is this is exactly like exactly the point. And and you know this as well as I do, I am sure, right? Is that when we look at this and say, look, this is the road to totalitarianism. This is the road to authoritarianism. You've got all these naysayers that will eventually come forward and will say things like, well, you're being a little too extreme here. You're being a little too And it's like, have we learned nothing historically 
right, about where this stuff happened. Of course, it's not like they go after the New York Times first, <laughs> right? They go after the New York Times would. last, right? <laughs> after they demonstrate, right, how, like, how they have kind of like, you know, like, I mean, we'll look right now, we're having one of the largest newspaper strikes, right, in the country, mm -hmm. right, precisely because of the downsizing of the gutting of newsrooms, of journalists finally saying, look, we have no other place to turn. And these are like, we're talking USA Today and Gannett there. We're not talking like, like lefty rags, right? You mm -hmm. know, and so when we look at something like this with the Asheville Blade, right, where you have it's self-proclaimed, you go to their website, they're very clear about their politics. They're not trying to hide anything, but they've got a whole bunch of articles and they have been covering Right, what the police have been doing in Asheville. And what's also interesting about this story is that in like Asheville is also known as one of these kind of liberal havens, right? Of like in North Carolina, where you have all the artists and all the kind of funky folks that are mm -hmm. there. And it's, so it's even happening in this context, right? It's not happening in some kind of deep kind of Alabama kind of suburb, even though I'm kind of generalizing <laughs> there, right? Um, but it's happening in a place that is supposed to be conducive or is known to be kind of liberal. And then we're seeing so folks make a decision, well, are these folks real journalists or not? Um, and like you say, I mean, these are the small steps that lead us in a direction um, that is very dark, right? Um, and if we you know, learned nothing over the past, whatever, 10 years, <laughs> right? It's that those small steps are precisely what get us to where we're at today. Of course. And I think you've, you've also highlighted what, you know, <laughs> one of the many problems of liberalism. Right. Uh, neoliberalism is the path towards fascism always. Uh, you know, I mean, I know I've already mentioned Germany once, but I'm going to go to that well again. Um, <laughs> you know, you look at what happened to Germany after World War I, extreme austerity measures. And so when somebody comes up and says, I have an easy scapegoat for y'all, it's really, it's really tempting. And we see the same thing with the rise of populism, whether it be here, whether it be in Sweden, whether it be in England, whether anywhere we see the rise of populism right now, it's because people are experiencing extreme austerity at the same time that there is extreme unrest in the world. So you have refugee crises, whether that be because of you know the, the American empire or whether that be climate refugees. And so you have these scapegoats, it's easy to it's easy to point at them and say it's their fault as opposed to it's a systemic issue. And we have to, we have to, we, we have to tear down this empire if we ever want to have peace and the life that we deserve. Uh, but that's a lot more, you know, that's not as sexy as just saying it's that dude's fault, you know? Yep. <laughs> like, right. It's not it's as just, easy, right? It doesn't right. turn, it doesn't turn the world into black, black, white, either or pro con, mm -hmm. you know, it's on off. Right? Yeah. It makes it much more difficult. Um, and, and what's part of that, the same kind of contradiction, you say problems of liberalism too, as well as how often have we heard like, you know, folks quote like Martin Niemöller, right? Like the say first they came for the communists, right? And then they came for the trade unionists and then they came, and I, didn't, and I said nothing. And right. then they came for me and there was no one left around. I mean, it's quoted as something that we're supposed to utilize to remember, right? It's in the kind of like National Holocaust Museum and there's a reason why they foreground this right there so that we will remember. Um, and yet here we sit at a moment where like, you know, look, I mean, I, I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. and 9-11, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when they locked down the city. I used to have to drive drive past the Pentagon to get to George Washington or George, uh, George Mason University. And I, you know, was shut down. There were tanks in the street and I saw the big hole in the side of the Pentagon still smoldering when I had to go back to classes. And I remember how 
thinking that that moment, this is how everything changes. And in rapid succession, they pass some of the most mm -hmm. brutal and kind of like, <laughs> you know, it, we gave away so many of our rights back then. Yeah. Um, and because we were afraid and there were people who were ready to step in, this is the, I mean, obviously this is not as dramatic as, and as kind of like, like in our face, but it, it is nonetheless the same type of thing. We see mm -hmm. the withering away of our civil liberties. And this is just this, this particular kind of moment. And if we're willing to say, well, they're not real journalists, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't have a New York Times badge or they don't have like whatever the local press is in Nashville, right? Um, because they're an alternative press, we are able to push them to the side. We're basically allowing this to continue. Yeah. And people, uh, people have become so adaptable and I find it kind of ironic that the thing that has allowed us to survive millions of years <laughs> or like hundreds of thousands as, as, as our species is now what's killing us, our adaptability, our ability to adapt to endless war, our ability to adapt to not having basic needs met like healthcare and shelter and food. And I mean, it is remarkable that we continue to adapt and also I, that the system is so adaptable. I think that's also something that like people talk about capitalism or our current system, like it's very rigid. It's not. It's rigid in the the broad structures, like the actual bones of the system are rigid. Oh, but it'll put up, you know, it'll it'll paint this wall rainbow colored and it'll paint that one with like Black Lives Matter and this one will be, you know, it is super fluid in how it decorates this mm -hmm. absolute crumbling rotten facade. And so I think like that's the other thing that people need to understand that like it doesn't matter how many black people Biden has in his damn cabinet. Dude wrote the 94 crime bill is a racist, is a rapist, is a war criminal. Who gives a crap who like how many black people he has in his cabinet? You don't do you think he knows or cares? Like this is the malleability of the system to put forward a an image that jibes with whatever is cool and in and hip in the moment so that people can wear a, you know, I'm with her shirt in rainbow colors right. at a pride parade. You know, this is like and it is it is really really sick and twisted uh that this is like that this is the, um, you know, the the adaptability of our people. And I'm not talking about just the U.S. I think, you know, uh, anybody who lives under capitalism, which last I checked was the planet, unfortunately, <laughs> um, is, is subject to its extreme propaganda and its ability to move in these in these very nefarious ways. Uh, and I think that that's also something that you see when you step outside of it. Like if you go to a, like a Cuba or if you go to a place that has that like deep-rooted political education and that deep-rooted respect for understanding their place in this larger system, it's, it's, my it is mind blowing in a beautiful way, um, and I think that that's also you know it's really something that we have to we have to be better at noticing how malleable the system is, so that we don't think that like oh I went to a Black Lives Matter protest so I can check the box for for saving the world and now I have a reusable tote bag and I'm done um, because that's not you know that's not going to save us. Yeah, and I think it's you know even comes down to say it's one thing to say I believe in the freedom of the press for example right and it's another thing to say okay, wait a minute, that means that we can't let these journalists go to jail, right? I mean, I mean that, those, things are, those things are connected, but the, 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 often the gap between talking about I believe versus therefore I am doing this thing in order mm -hmm. to stand behind those beliefs, there, there's, a, there's a big gap there. There's a lot to do with what your you know, political education 
and our, you know, and the decimation of really uh, our kind of non-official, I don't know, institutions of political education that were the labor unions that were the kind of yeah. the, the left movements, the socialist movements that kind of train generations of people um, about mm -hmm. how to kind of build community and sustain community and struggle. Um, so if we're looking at this case now, my understanding is here too, as well. When I'm, I'm, there's this, there's this one line that I thought was, was fascinating in this, uh, this judge Hill in this one, in this case, um, um, I, I, well, let me just read this paragraph. She said, still, Judge Hill refused to acknowledge their press status and therefore any suggestion that this was a First Amendment case. In his decision, he stated that they may be journalists, but there was no evidence provided to the court that they are journalists, despite this, <laughs> the fact that, as Coit points out, that, quote, that was the only thing that the prosecution and the defense agreed upon, <laughs> right? That they did not have to prove that we were employed by the Asheville Blade. Being journalists was not up for debate. So it was almost this case, not only... Are we seeing, and, and as you mentioned in this year, this is the first time that journalists, it's not the first time journalists have been arrested, right? I mean, journalists have been arrested frequently, <laughs> right? But this mm -hmm. is the first time that a court has found them guilty, mm -hmm. right, of doing the work of journalism. And I can't imagine, like that line right there, just, I, I had to pause at that point in your article because you're thinking that you're going into this case, you're, you're kind of talking about the work you were doing as journalists, and you're being told the prosecution and the defense, like, okay, we all agree. Like, we don't need to talk about where you're journalists or not because you're clearly journalists. The question about does, do you have the right to kind of quote unquote trespass on a public park during this action? Really what was, they thought was at stake in this case, mm -hmm. but instead, right, they get blindsided by this, right? And basically saying, no, you know, you didn't even prove that you were a journalist. So therefore mm -hmm. you have no right to be there. That was okay. astonishing to me. Yeah, no, it is astonishing. And the judge, even uh, Veronica was explaining to me in our interview uh, that uh, that's up at projectcensored.org if, if folks want to go listen to it. Veronica was explaining to me that the judge could then also have said, but you know what, let's call it time served because there's no like, you know, minimum requirement uh, for, for something like trespassing. Uh, so he could have just said, look, you spent some time in jail already. Let's just call it quits. No, he wanted to throw the entire book at her, as right. she put it, or as they put it, and really go after both Veronica and Matilda for this. So it's not like it wasn't even just that he was like, look, I don't think that you're press, but whatever. <laughs> he really dug his heels in and, and said, you know what? You're not press and I want to make you suffer for not being the appropriate kind of press. So this isn't just a matter of a judge deciding who and who is not press. It is a matter of a judge deciding and then getting to punish somebody for being adversarial press. So, and this is, and I, and I mentioned Assange in the same article, and of yep. course I'm not suggesting that this is like being tortured for over a decade uh, by the, by the U S empire, but it's the same kind of, um, uh, like thinking and mentality that you are a threat to our status quo. You are a threat to how we operate our standard operating procedure. And therefore you must suffer. You personally must suffer for going up against this system. And for Julian Assange, of course, that's the entire U S empire for Veronica and Matilda. That is the city of Asheville, but it is it is frightening, regardless of the of the size of the of the scope of this mentality, because again, these things these things popcorn, you know, just right. like the 
just like the bills that make it, uh, you know, that th- th- that give longer prison sentences and higher fines for blocking a pipeline. That popcorn now it's in like twenty states. Yep. Uh, and you know, just a few years ago, it was in like five. So these ideas, these precedents that are set, they they spread faster than COVID, and so it is horrifying to realize that this judge has that mentality of punishment for adversarial press and that this could then be copy and pasted anywhere. And as you pointed out, it's not like we're talking about, uh, you know, Houston, Texas, or, uh, you know, something like that. We're talking about Asheville, which, you know, I grew up in North Carolina and Asheville was always like this weird place that I would go (laughs) to escape from Charlotte, North Carolina, because Charlotte was super lame. No offense, anybody who lives in Charlotte, but Charlotte's lame. Um, It was like an oasis. And so this was not, I mean, now I I get it. I, I was young and I didn't really understand any liberalism, but whatever. It would still had weird people. And so this is this is a place that should not have been. I mean, it's like in my childhood mind, I'm like, this shouldn't have happened there. <laughs> That's right. not allowed. Right. <laughs> but of course, there is no place that is immune to this kind of thinking. And it just goes to show that these this mentality, this sort of fascistic and authoritarian thinking can happen and does happen anywhere. And it is really horrifying to think that this is happening in Asheville and then can be copy and pasted anywhere and- yep. Legacy media won't care. A lot of other people won't care. Like it is really horrifying that that is happening right now, and that it's so quiet. Well, yeah, and 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 let's be clear because you had enti- we have an entire um, kind of right wing infrastructure that is built to exploit moments like this, right? To ensure that it will, as you say, popcorn, mm-hmm. right? To say now every case is a test case once we right. if it's going to fit into that particular agenda. I mean, like, you know, I think about like how many, when it was, when we thought it was extreme, when uh, there was a law passed, I think it was in Florida at first, where maybe not, maybe it was Alabama for first, where, hey, it's legal to hit a protester with a car, right? If they don't get out of the way, well, that's their, that's their problem. And then we started seeing those laws pop up in townships and towns all over the country. And well, th- lest we forget that this was this was a this was a trial that was done in Charlottesville, and actually, yep. my partner and I were almost hit by that car. Ooh. And what I, that? after that happened, I was quite sure. Oh my God, this is that somebody's somebody's got to do something. I mean, I know the U.S. is a mess, but this can't just like we just can't just let this go. But yeah. we did. And we adapted to that too. We adapted to the idea that fascists can drive a car at high speeds into a group of people and that's okay. Like it is, it is horrific, but it is very, very, very much the country that we live in. Man, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know you were there for that. And like, I didn't mean to spring that on you to bring you back no, into no, that fine. moment, but that's like, I no, mean, but, but I think right. we, like we do need to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's important to highlight, and I bring it up not infrequently uh, because I want people to know, like, this is this is the United States. And I talk yeah. about it frequently in, in Sweden, too, because a lot of people in Sweden, I'm half Swedish. That's why I say that. I'm not just like, I don't just, just wander into Sweden. Sweden for no reason. <laughs> um, but like, but a lot of people in Europe, not just in Sweden, but in Europe have this really romantic view of the US. You know, they think that but like I live next door to Brad Pitt and everybody it's like Melrose place. That's a dated reference, but you know, whatever it is that these days, but like they think that it's very romantic 
even though there are also problems. But the problems, you guys really don't deal with those problems. It doesn't affect you. You know, they wouldn't believe if I told them that it cost me $15,000 to get some stitches in an emergency room. <laughs> like it's, people don't know this about the US. And so there is this propaganda campaign that reaches far beyond our borders that doesn't recognize either the harm that is meted out by the empire or the harm that is meted out on us. Because of course, empires don't just lash out, they lash in. Um, and so this is, I, I mean, I talk about Charlottesville, uh, you know, when I'm in Sweden, I talk about a lot of the messed up things that I've, that I've seen. Um, and people always look at me like, what, really? That, that's a thing in the US? I'm like, yeah. It is, it is, uh, can I curse on your show? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm like, yes, it is that shithole country. Like, and that's nothing, I mean, and I, look, I love the United States in terms of its people and some of the places and like, well, some of the people too. But I, but as a government, it is shit. And let's be honest, it's always been shit. This country was founded on genocide and slavery. Like I'm, there's, ugh, don't reform it. Why? Just start over. Like, I don't, I don't understand this gripping hold of a romantic past that we just don't have as a nation. Most nation states don't, let's be honest, because the creation of any nation state requires violence uh, and it requires othering of the violent kind. You know, it's like, I, we have to just accept this as a nation and then reckon with that. And what do we want to do about it? And how do we make sure that, okay, we can't save the past, we can't save much of the present. What are we going to do about the future so that we can all live in a world that we deserve in, or that, that we deserve? Um, and that just can't happen within the framework of a nation that was founded on slavery and genocide. Yeah. And I think that, you know, this is a perfect example where it's not a coincidence that you have this kind of suppression of journalists, this arrest of journalists and conviction on the charge of trespassing here at the same time that we see movements to ban books, at the same time that mm -hmm. we see the anti-LGBTQ policies going through within schools that we see, you know, um, these kind of restrictive, you know, property rights things coming up. I mean, we see kind of new laws around water. I mean, all this kind of stuff yeah. is have, I mean, I hate the, the when I branch up, but it does seem like, I mean, these, it's not a coincidence. It's, you know, the, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're asking anything, when you, you know, we back the empire into the corner, right? They're going to lash mm -hmm. out, right? And they're going to find ways yeah. of doing that um, at the here. And I hate to say it like they, like it's somehow like there are two or three people that are conspiracy things like this. But I mean, <laughs> if it's, you know, I think you put it better before when you're saying this is kind of built into the fabric, right? In terms mm -hmm. of how there's the status quo and the people that benefit from the status quo, or at least are invested in somehow, whether it's through their narratives of it, or it's their personal kind of investments in it to keeping that story going. Yeah. Um, as opposed to saying, well, the minute you start to introduce other models, other ideas, other conflict, then they're going to try to, you know, cut down, cut you down for it. And, and here we go. Well, and it, it reminds me of, I was having a conversation with, with uh, Richard Wolf, uh, who was a rad economist, if folks aren't yeah, familiar awesome. with him, he, he does great work. But so he went to Harvard for, um, for economy and he, he teaches economy as well. And he's like, so the way that the U.S. structures it is you go to economy class and all they teach is capitalism. And he's like, let me give you an example. It's like as if you were taking theology and the only thing they taught you was Presbyterianism. 
wouldn't you feel like you're not getting the full story? Yeah. <laughs> like, but that's the thing. Like, we don't even know what we don't know, right? Like, the it, whoever whoever discovered fish or t- discovered water, it wasn't the fish, right? Like that saying. Yeah. Like, we're so steeped in it that we're like, wait, what? Capitalism? Like, we don't, or colonialism or imperialism. Like, we're so steeped in it. And it's so part of our programming that it is so difficult to start to separate ourselves from that because it's part of our identity as Americans. And I get that it's, you know, I've, I struggled with it too. Like, wait, I'm, I'm proud to be, wait, what am I, what, what are we talking about? What does that even mean? Like, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a, a child of empire? And so I get that like, this is a struggle. Um, but I think that the only way that we can move forward is to have this again, like circling back to political education. Let's yeah. look at what really happened. Let's read the banned books that they're, you know, burning or, or taking off shelves. Like let's look at the journalists who are, or jailed, who are not allowed to speak, including Mumia Abu-Jamal, like, there are journalists who are in jail right now that have, you know, political prisoners. The U.S. has a lot of them. So, like, let's look at this history. Let's look at this present. Uh, and from that, we can start to legitimately build something that is better that we deserve. 100%. And I think that, you know, this is the one, I think, the thing that's encouraging about what's this case that's in, in North Carolina, too, as well. Um, and not to force us back there too quickly, right? Because, I mean, I think you're, I mean, I could just continue this conversation. you know what Sorry. i'm saying but i mean no 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 apologies please this is precisely why you know i'm i wanted you to have to come on the show because i mean this case you know again we the the flip side of this uh, of this discussion right is that sometimes we focus only on the things that are really specific without putting it into that context right and i, I i'm a firm believer that you have to do both right that get mm. these specific moments where right, these specific struggles are absolutely critical, right? In part yeah. because, you know, they kind of, you know, to go the political philosophy, the heart and negri thing, they, you know, kind of jump to the level of empire kind of in these particular moments that we can mm-hmm. see them and unpack them, you know, very much in the ways that I always thought about science fiction in the same way. I'm the, I know this is gonna be a weird analogy, but, you know, about being able to take something of the present and the contradictions and the struggles and, and you know, the problems of the present and kind of teasing out threads into and take, abstracting them mm-hmm. into the future to be able to look back on the present to see it more yeah. critically. You know, and I think about like these these moments as very in a very similar way to this where and things where both a court case and kind of like, you know, a, a work of fiction are critical at these moments to help us with our imaginary, help us to understand, to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And the, the, one of the, um, not just the only, but one of the positive things in this case is that, um, you know, have that they're not taking it lying down. I mean, this, they're mm-hmm. going back to court. If I next Monday, right. Is a jury trial begins next Monday. Actually. Uh, so Veronica messaged me and they said that they are, they were in court today. Oh, they were in court. Um, I don't know how that went. Um, I have not heard back from them about that. Um, it says that uh, in in their email to me that they they are going to be in in court Monday the fifth with several motions for the judge to consider. If he rules against the motion to dismiss, will be in court starting on the twelfth to begin jury selection and eventually the trial. So I don't know what happened today. Uh, they might have posted about it, in which case um, folks can 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 take a look at that via the Asheville blade. Um, but yeah, so that would, if they, if it doesn't get dismissed, if it didn't get dismissed, uh, then they will be in court on the 12th. 
uh, to begin jury selection, which that's the other thing is that, um, you know, the way that jury selection happens in this country, uh, the jury of one's peers is, is a point that can be easily argued. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why that I've, every time I've been there, uh, waiting to get selected for a jury, they've never picked me. But um, that's their score. Um, well, good. So, I mean, if people are looking for more information about this, is like the Asheville Blade one of the uh, best places they can go to, to to follow up what's happening there and to get involved? Yes, yes absolutely. Check out the Asheville Blade. They're on, uh, I believe, they're on Twitter at the Asheville Blade, or some. If you just look it up, uh, look up the Asheville Blade, you'll find them, and they have updates about uh, about their case. Fantastic. Well, listen, I know I've already kept you long, but I can't let you go without um, just asking you about. I mean. Uh, as as I said at the top of the show, um, uh, I first I, I saw Eleanor's piece in uh, Truth Out, and said, wanted to have her on for their show. And then as I was kind of kind of <laughs> looking for a bio, I says, "Wait a minute, I think I <laughs> this is so like ringing funny. bells, right? From like music and stuff like." That. And then I saw that not only do you have a new EP um, that was just released, which kind of um, I will full disclosure, I bought right after listening to it. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's I mean I'm I'm loving it. Um, a great video along with, um, you know, along with it for Pyre. I love that, uh, that one too, as well. But, um, you also have this documentary film out about, um, kind of West Virginia. Um, so can you take a few minutes to talk about those two projects, um, and where people could go to, could check those things out too, as well? Sure. So, um, so, uh, no, that's so funny that you, that you remember <laughs> rooftop revolutionaries. Yeah. I was like, I, I, was like, I, I barely remember. <laughs> um but yeah so the band broke up because that's what bands do that's what bands do um yeah pipelines leak and bands break up um (laughs) (laughs) i have have that's gonna be my new shirt um so uh i took a break from music for a while um because we we just needed a moment and uh then one day i just picked up the guitar again we hung out a little bit and so no solo is my first solo album. And I know I'm not trying to be cute by calling it that. Um, It's a recognition of the fact that even as a solo artist now, um, I don't do anything on my own. Um, The record was produced with a complete uh, mad scientist of a producer who I love. Um, A friend of mine played guitar on it with me. Uh, You know, people helped make it happen either through artwork or through supporting the project. Uh, and so we, I don't exist in a vacuum. And I, I think that it's important that we always recognize when we do something solo, yes, we recognize that, okay, this is my project, but also that there's no such thing as, as working in a vacuum. Um, and so, uh, so that's a collection of, of, it's an EP, so it's, it's not that many songs. Uh, well, it's actually, it's three songs and two spoken word pieces that have uh, sound design behind them. Um, and so that was released, uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago. I, the, the pandemic has just made time ridiculous. Weird, totally. So I'm like a hundred years ago yesterday. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and if you're into vinyl before you move on, there's an awesome, I don't know yeah. if there's any of the vinyl. Was that like just, just re- released or put out or was that also, yeah, so come that, out was, with that was, that was released. Uh, the vinyl was released like. Again, a couple years ago, couple but years there's ago. still there's still vinyl left. It's beautiful. So have... I I don't have any record player anymore, unfortunately, because <laughs> otherwise I would grab that up too as well. But... It is. I mean, I have to say it's it, it's a beautiful like it's printed on red vinyl and the artwork is beautiful. Um, 
So, so yeah, that that's available as well. Um, and that's along with everything else is up at artkillingapathy.com. Um, but the, the documentary, and I actually just recently did a, a documentary tour of the film in Germany, um, to kind of uh, show and contrast the lived experiences of folks in the coal region in West Virginia and the folks in coal regions in Germany. Uh, and also now that Germany is talking about importing fracked gas, because uh, West Virginia is in the, the the transition from coal to gas, and that's really what the film is about, um, the, the dying of King Coal and the pedestaling of gas and oil, uh, and how people are organizing against it, uh, and using a radical history that is kind of like what we've discussed, not talked about, and in fact, completely erased. Uh, you know, I spoke to one woman who has lived, was born in Matewan, West Virginia, has lived there all of her life, had never heard of the Matewan massacre. Um, and if folks don't know what I'm talking about, then I mean, look Go it up. Matewan, is... just start, let's get yes. there, right? <laughs> start there. Right. Um, watch my movie too, but yeah, we but don't, yeah, fo- yeah, I don't yeah, focus so, yeah. on the Matewan massacre, but, um, but it is, it, it's been buried on, it's been buried with the bodies of those who were killed by the coal companies and the, by the police on purpose, right? Because if you know that if things are unjust and you can take up arms against the unjust, against the coal barons, that you can link arms black and white, and you can shoot at rich coal barons, that's not something that they want you to know. (laughs) They don't want you to know that at the end of that story, they won no child labor. They won getting paid in US dollars. They won a five-day work week. They don't want you to know that they won at the end of that. Because then you're like, okay, let's let, let's 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 set some shit on fire. <laughs> let's win, <laughs> right? But if you just learn that basically there was one revolution at the beginning, and then everything's been great since then, and if anything's wrong, it's your problem uh, because you're lazy. Well, then you're going to be a good, dutiful prole who just shuts up and works. Um, so this, th- what what's happening in West Virginia is really a a revitalization of their history. Um, and I also wanted to share this because as somebody who grew up in the South, I consider myself a Southerner. Um, people like to shit on the South. Yes. Uh, and I get it. I did that growing up too. I was like, Ugh, the South, I don't like being from the South. But I grew up, I evolved. And now I'm very proud of it because the South has a very radical history. A radical history that I didn't know at the time because yep. I wasn't supposed to know. Um, and this is the history that we have to reconnect to, that we have to dig up literally and figuratively, um, and that will really show us how to build the, the, the future. So that's what the film is about. Um, and you can find that via artkillingapathy.com as well. You can also look up hardroadofhope.com. That's fantastic. Well, listen, Eleanor, I, I appreciate the generosity with your time. I know I kept you longer than I promised that I was going to, um, but, That's okay. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank wonderful. you. Wonderful. I, I mean, it's nice, kind of you to say that. And I, and I, you know, encourage everybody to head on over to uh, Truth Out. Um, check out her piece. If the police can decide to qualify as a journalist, there is no free, uh, free press. 
um, make sure you can head on over to um, um, the uh, Asheville, the Asheville, why am I blanking right here? The Asheville Blade. Thank you. The Asheville Blade um, and check out, find out what's the status of this case um, and uh, follow what's going on because it will definitely have implications. You can check out um, all of Eleanor's awesome work by, as she said, go to artkillingapathy.com. You can follow her on Twitter at, at Radical Eleanor. Um, check out her film, The Hard Row of, of Hope. Um, and make sure, you know, go buy that AP too as well. So you can listen to it while you're kind of uh, getting ready to head out into the streets. So <laughs> that's what you want to do. Um, Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. Oh, you got it. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, thank you all for kind of joining in tonight. Um, make sure you are spreading the word and getting this out. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, all the fights that we have in front of us, all the fights we have going forward. Um, and uh, hope you enjoyed tonight's show too as well. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, I'll be back on Friday for our Friday Politics Roundup. And we will be back next week with Ali Shaw talking about why big oils pour money into Pennsylvania. See ya! I'm flying away now.